I'd like to say, along with Jason, welcome to our friends from Arkansas, and uh, so glad you could be here. One thing we notice about Robbie and Kim, they are all over Louisville, and building relationships, it's like we say, how do you reach the world with the good news, one life at a time, and that's exactly how they've approached that, and so we're so glad to have you here, and glad we have some good weather on this Labor Day weekend. And we trust that uh, the time that we're able to spend in God's Word uh, at this time will be an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. Matthew chapter 5 is our text where we've been the last few weeks and, and probably, no doubt, the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee with some very profound words, life-changing words. So we started by asking this question, what is it that you're looking for? And it feels a little funny to say this, but I want to be happy. Now, we feel a little maybe dirty saying that, maybe a little selfish, maybe a little self-centered in that, but it's really not a wrong feeling and it grows out of a rightful intent that God had it when, when God created the world and he created man and woman and brought them together. His desire was that they be happy, fulfilled. And that brought great pleasure to God. So that is God's desire. In fact, we read the word, it sounds a little more spiritual to say, blessed, <laughs> blessed, blessed. We call these beatitudes. But a literal, literal translation is happy. It means happy. Now, not in a superficial sense, but in a deep sense of satisfaction and joy and contentment and fulfillment and favor. At the deepest level, God wants you to be happy. The Greek word is makarios, and it's exactly what God wants you to be. So if I want to be happy and God wants me to be happy, why aren't I happy? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. We say, well, what's the problem? If, if God, in his creative intent, in his desire for me, and my desire when I wake up every morning is to be happy, to be fulfilled, then where's the conflict? And the problem is this, is... We still have a great deal of sadness because in the way that we pursue it, the way that we pursue our happiness, there's a lot of sadness in this world that comes, and we experience that, levels of sadness that you experienced over this past week. So how is it that if God wants this, I want this, I'm not always realizing it because the way that I will tend to pursue happiness is not the way God would have me pursue it. Very important to understand that. And there's a great verse in Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, says this, There is a path or a way before each person that seems right, but ends in death. Interesting statement, isn't it? There is a way... There is a path that seems to us to be right. But in fact, it ends in death. In that day, there were people, the crowd that gathered, probably hundreds, 
if not thousands at times, to listen to this profound teaching of Jesus. Gathering of common people that came to listen to his words of wisdom because he taught in an unusual way as one with great authority and great power, unlike what they had heard before. There were also special interest groups that we have followed, and it, it somewhat amuses us because we see the same special interest groups here today. We had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the rule keepers. In fact, we don't have enough rules. We need more rules. They're the ones that want to go back to tradition, back to the old paths, the old ways. I've heard many a sermon on that. Let's get back to the way things used to be, to the good old days, the good old times. So you had those people that are crying out that we could all be happy if we would just kind of return, return to the way things were. Then you had the Sadducees. They would say, break all the rules. We need change. We need innovation. We need progress. We need freedom. We're all stuck in the past, and the reason you Pharisees are so miserable because you got all those rules. If you get rid of all the rules, you'll be happy. A lot of kids will go for that one. (laughs) They want to mix it up. That's their pursuit. That's their way, Sadducees, of finding happiness. Break all the rules. Then the zealots. They're the political activists. Fight for your rights, your social cause. Fight for your freedom. Change the government. Boy, wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting if we could go change the government and put into place in every political position in the United States like exactly the person we thought would do the best job? This country would still be a mess. Because what this country needs is Jesus. I don't want to get off on that. I will when elections come around. I think we get sidetracked on what really matters. So they're feeling like the way that we're going to be happy is if we just have justice in the land and we have better laws and rules and we can take control of Washington. Those were the zealots. And then finally you had the Essenes. And basically, as I said, they're the hippies of the day. And their motto would be, let's move to Idaho. We'll stockpile food and ammunition. We'll, get, we'll isolate ourselves from all the, the, the toxic influences of this world, and I'm just going to protect myself from all of the evil. The problem is, is that the problem of evil is not just out there. <laughs> it's also in here. And, and, and so when we say there is a way that seems right to a person, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, or the Essenes, or just the common everyday person that just wants to be happy. There is a way that seems right to you to be happy. But the end is leading to death. So here's what Jesus said. He said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. These are startling words that Jesus would say. I am the way. There is a way that seems right to you. You're pursuing happiness. You're not finding it. There is a way. I am the way. There is truth. I am the truth. There is life. I am the life. He also said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have a rich and satisfying life. That's John 10.10. Now, think about that. If Jesus says, I have come 
I have come for you so that you might have a rich and satisfying life. I would say that's a good way to describe happy. So if Jesus came for this, finding we, in all of our vain pursuits, we're not finding it, and he, and he says, here's, here's the path. Here is the path. He doesn't give you a list. He says two words. And you're going to hear them a lot here at Valley. Follow me. Follow me. He doesn't say, ask Jesus into your heart. doesn't say, be saved. He doesn't say, you know, um, agree with all these doctrines. No, he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. A subtitle for this sermon might be The Christian Life, Not What You Think. (laughs) Because he makes a series of paradoxical statements, seeming contradictions. In other words, everything he says makes you want to scratch your head. That doesn't make sense. The Christian life, not what you think, it is different. So if I were to, and I think it's a, this is a good time just to, to compare, what is today in America, American Christianity, what, what I would call popular, everyday Christianity, popular Christianity, and authentic, biblical Christianity? What's the difference? First of all, authentic Christianity works from the inside out. It's your heart. You'll find that Jesus, all through his teachings, goes for the heart. Not about what, how people look on the outside, their image management, or by what they do, their performance, but who they are, their heart. Popular Christianity would say, you know what's still important of who you're with and what you're doing, how, you, how you're getting along, how you appear. I think social media drives Christianity as much as it does anything else. <clears throat> Jesus looks beyond the surface. That's the fundamental difference between popular Christianity and authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is from the inside out. Number two, authentic Christianity would say, you must be born again. That's what Jesus said. Nicodemus, the religious leader, came asking Jesus about all the miracles he's doing. He says to Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, a religious, very religious, moral, upright man, and he says to him, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? What are you talking about? Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. You can't live the life when you don't have the life. And the life comes from above, not from working yourself up by the life coming down. That's the difference. Today, a lot of Christianity, popular Christianity, is what I call the nod to God generation. Oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible. You've not been born again. Number three, the difference in, in contrast is Authentic Christianity does not look like the world. In fact, he goes on to describe this in the sermon by saying, you are salt and light. You are distinct. You are different. You are unique. Your life doesn't look like the world. But here's the problem. 
<clears throat> Christianity becomes a cheap imitation of the world system. We're trying to impress the world by what we do. We're trying to be like them to win them. If I'm, if, hey, if I'm really cool like you, maybe you'll be attracted to Jesus. <clears throat> Our life is completely different. And the, the fundamental distinctive of authentic Christianity is love. Unconditional, sacrificial, extravagant love. Now, before you think love is all gushy and feeling and, and is not that serious, when you start to... I'm talking about the kind of love that took Jesus to a cross to die for your sins. I'm talking about the love that sacrifices. I'm talking about the love that loves anyway, unconditionally, no matter what, no matter what you do to me, I love you. It's supernatural love. And then finally, the distinctive is the way of, of following Jesus is, is authentic. It's not following a list of rules or ascribing to things, but following his life. And that is the kingdom. When we talk about, he speaks about his kingdom, he's, he's inviting us to follow his authority in his life. Authentic Christianity. So, let's jump back into this text. And we're in verse 4 today, which, which to me is um, <clears throat> it's a powerful statement. I've titled this message, Happy Are the Sad. <laughs> now, you think, man, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, if you follow through here, Every, everything he says is, again, going to make you scratch your head and be puzzling to you. And we would say, learning to mourn. He says, blessed, in verse 4, blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So when we say this, happy are the sad, someone might say, I can't even take you seriously. What are you, what are you speaking about? But it does hit a nerve. It did then, it does now. During that time, there was a lot of sadness in that culture. When Jesus was speaking to the average group of people, there were people that were lame and blind. There were many beggars, people that had leprosy that were off in the distance. There were people that were in extreme poverty. So you, you saw a great deal of sadness. Life expectancy was about half of what it is today. Infant mortality was extremely high. So it was not uncommon to hear weeping and wailing of people and mourning and as people are going off to a funeral because they're laying to rest a child or a loved one who is, who's died in what we would call the prime of life. There's a great deal of sadness in this culture. Now, it's interesting, when, it, when, they use, when he uses this word mourn, it's the word pentheo in the Greek New Testament. Uh, and I say that because Greek is an interesting language because we can have one word in English and there will be like this eight different words in Greek and each one of them have a different, different angle on this. But the word pentheo is the most extreme of all the words to describe grief. Or mourning. Of all the words that are used in the New Testament, this one has the greatest weight of internal agony. So what causes you to grieve? What causes you to mourn? What causes you to be sad, discouraged, disheartened? 
It happens every day. And there are certain times of the year where it, it, it seems almost overpowering for us, overwhelming for us, sadness, sorrow, grief, pain. So for Jesus to say, happy are the sad, what's he getting at here? The cause of all sorrow and all pain and all sadness and all grief is sin. Sin is the cause, the source of all of it. I don't think it would be hard to establish that fact. That something, ha- it, something is wrong. Something is sad. Something is hurtful. Sin has happened. That doesn't mean that you committed the sin, but there is sin in this world. So when you have mass murders, you gunmen taking people out in a school, you have automobile accidents, you have drunk drivers, you have people that are murdering infants, you, you, ha- you, you have all kinds of things going on in this world, sickness and disease and sorrow. At some point, sin has caused this. And the sorrow is the effect of sin. We live in a fallen world. That's obvious. And what do we learn? So Jesus is saying there's something you can learn about grief and sorrow and mourning. Robert Browning wrote this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. How do we interpret what Jesus is saying? Because I think this is, you know, we can, we can read through this real quickly and say, oh, happy are the sad, or blessed are they that mourn. Well, I, mean, I guess maybe um, in a general sense, if I mourn over my sin today, I will one day be comforted when I go to heaven and there's no more sin. That's true. Um, I don't think that's what this is talking about. It is, that is a true statement. And I think to a degree in a general sense that for the believer who has received Jesus Christ as personal Savior and has eternal life, we have the hope of heaven. That someday we will be with God and Jesus in heaven in perfect creation a new heavens and a new earth created for us where there is no sin, no sorrow, no sickness. And he says in Revelation, I will wipe away every tear from their eye. Now, that is, that is true, and we can take great comfort in that. But I also believe that this sermon is for the present. The present, not just that future. I believe it is for the present. What is he speaking about? The point of the message is specifically about your sin. I mean, you, okay, and me. Let me, let me back up a minute. When I, when I mourn, it's easy for me to mourn and have sadness for all the sins of the world and the effects of sin everywhere in things that even affect me. But 
what Jesus is saying is, happy are you when you learn to mourn and grieve over your personal sin. You say, well, this is getting a little uncomfortable. (laughs) That's the way Jesus was, okay? This is his sermon, not mine. (laughs) I'm repeating it. So how is it that sin, when he speaks about my sin personally, and I like to just make a comment about about sin and, and its effect upon my life. First of all, when, when I, as a believer, if I say, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. I have, I have accepted the free gift of eternal life, and He has washed away my sin. He has given me forgiveness for my sin. He has given me to eternal life. I would say many of you here have done that. Okay, so in the past, what has taken place is when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood for my sins, he offered himself as a substitute and forgiveness to wash away all of my sins forever, past, present, and future, and promised to me a home in heaven for eternity. Okay, that's past. And that's what we call justification. Justification. Now, if we look to the future, what I talked about just a moment ago is in the perfect state, when all this life is over, he creates a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no pain, nothing bad at all, no evil, all joy, all happiness. That is what we call glorification. When God receives all glory, we have a new body, we have a new life. Okay, so that's future, that was past. Now, right now, we're in the middle, (laughs) Okay, this is what we call the nasty now and now. <clears throat> we live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen body that is decaying. I have an old nature that has a propensity to do evil, to do its own thing all the time. And so there is, in the middle part, there's a struggle. No struggle with the past, that's done. No struggle about the future, I'm looking forward to that. But the struggle is with sin around me now and in me, the battles of daily temptation. So this is what he's speaking about here. The nature and effects of sin upon the life. And, and what, what happens is any sin in my life robs me of joy. It robs me of happiness. If you think about this, okay, when God created the Garden of Eden and he put in Adam and Eve, before sin happened, everything was happy. <laughs> I mean, think about it. There wasn't one ounce of sadness in all of the Garden of Eden. When did sadness come in? When did pain come in? When did heartache come in? When did grief come in? When sin came. And so, not only out there, but in here. I told you he's going to the heart. He's going to where it's uncomfortable. So what what Jesus is saying, when you learn to mourn and grieve over your personal sin, that is the pathway to happiness and comfort. Because when I do see my sin and mourn for it and turn from it, we use the word repent, but it means that I do not let sin reign or rule in my life. Now, I get tempted. You get tempted. We get, we get tempted every day to do things that are wrong. 
And sin, any kind of sin, will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of all happiness. This is where he's going. This is what this message is about. So, blessed are you, or happy are you that are sad. When you become sad over your sin, or sad over what you've done, what does that lead to? It leads to repentance. It leads to forsaking that. It leads to change, which leads to comfort and leads to happiness. There is no more miserable person in all of the world than a Christian who's living in sin, just doing things they know are not pleasing to God. Now, when we talk about repentance, and I know that tends to be a, a theological word, but repentance means simply a change of mind that results in a change of life. So repentance means, I'm going this way, and faith is the other side of the coin. Repentance, faith. So as Christians, can we go off down the wrong path? Yes, we can. And, and it's, it's what's going to result in that when we do things that are wrong is going to be an intense amount of sadness. So when we recognize that, mourn over that, grieve over that, the result is I turn in faith back to the path where there is no sin prevailing in my life. Now, there are two kinds of repentance. One is what we call attrition. The other is contrition. Now, here's the difference. Attrition is I am motivated by fear of punishment. So, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) You've seen people confess their sins. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Why? Because they know they're going to get it. (laughs) You're sorry for the consequence. You're sorry, I'm sorry you got offended. Uh, You ever have someone say that to you? You say, I'm sorry you took that the wrong way. (laughs) Um, But it's not not a true repentance. It's just like, I'm sorry for the consequence. Well, there's a lot of that attrition going on. But contrition is a real repentance of sin. It is generated by a profound sorrow over sin and produces a change. Now, I'm going to read to you, and we'll have it up on the screen, what, what Paul said in Second Corinthians. This is just a, I know it's kind of fine print, but <clears throat> it's good for your exercise your eyes. But listen carefully to what he, he's talking about this. He had written a letter to them pre, previously that was pretty pointed. Uh, he makes reference to this and, and confronting them about some issues in their lives. He says in uh, chapter 7, verse 8, Second Corinthians, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. See, this is what he's saying. This is the kind of sorrow God wants you to have, where you turn and change your ways, so that you are not harmed by us in any way. In verse 10, he says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So if you're just sorry for the consequences of the sin, it's not, it's not going to bring joy into your life. Joy is when 
there is great forgiveness. There's a probably the, the best illustration of this I can find is with David. Uh, you remember David? He's um, remember him as David and Goliath, the young seventeen-year-old boy that slay, slays a nine-foot giant, later becomes king. Uh, but David, who's a man after God's own heart, this is how God describes him: a man after God's own heart, stumbled and fell. Okay. Now, I don't like pointing that out because I feel like, you know, there's so much of David's life that was incredible. But he did stumble and fall. Part of the reason why this helps me is because even the best of men and women can stumble and fall. They can still be tempted. They can still do wrong. But it shows you how this works. So to give you a little synopsis of the story, um, he didn't go to battle. The rest of his troops are at battle. He's on the rooftop. He sees a woman. He lusts after her. He takes her. He commits immorality with her. She becomes pregnant. She sends notice to him. He doesn't know what to do. This is, this is one of his... Her husband is one of the uh, best soldiers he has. So he connives a plan to have him slain in battle. So here he is, guilty of the heart of lust, guilty of immorality, guilty of murder. And it appears, if you read back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that months went by without him ever getting this right with God. I mean, he just, he he just kind of got off track. Have you ever gotten off track before? Where you, where you just kind of, there's a slow drift you know, you're, you're just, you know, and with him, it probably wasn't some big event that says, I'm turning from God or I'm going to go do what I want to do. No, it was just probably a slow erosion of his spiritual life that led him down that path. But where we find him in 2 Samuel 11 is very distant from God. And he is miserable. He is miserable. And so... There are two psalms that he writes that he tells about this experience of where he is with it. And the first one is in Psalm 32. He writes, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now listen to what he says about where he was. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in a summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Now, do you see how mourning leads to happiness and comfort and joy? This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. In Psalm 51, He says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. 
See, he had lost his joy. He had lost his happiness. And we're not talking about becoming a Christian. He was already a follower. He was already a believer in the coming Messiah. So this wasn't a matter of becoming a Christian. This was a matter of a, a child of God who had gotten off the rails and was, was spinning down in grief and sadness. The Lord rescued him. And then the second passage that I, I'd like to show you is in 1 John chapter 1, and verses 5 to 10. This is just an incredible, incredible passage. Uh, you can follow it or just listen to these words. This is the message we heard from Jesus, and now we declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And then in, in chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you do not sin. Okay? Now we know that. He writes this that we do not sin. But he says, I love this part, but if you do sin, <laughs> because it's going to happen. Right? It's going to happen. But if you do sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ. The one who is truly righteous, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now this, this shows you that sin does affect our lives. Past, that's dealt with. Jesus died for our sins, we're his children, we're on our way to heaven. Future, everything is going to be perfect, there's going to be no more sorrow in heaven. But the present reality, the message that Jesus has in Matthew 5, 4, is this. You need to grieve and sorrow and mourn over your personal sin to the point that it leads you to repentance and frees you so you can have joy again. Because your sin will take away all joy out of your life. And you know what? Satan would just love that. He may not be able to steal away your soul, but he'll try to steal away your happiness. We drift into this very slowly. And I feel that for many of us, it's like Alexander Pope, I paraphrase, sin is a monster of such awful mean. That left unguarded is but to be seen, but seen too oft with familiar face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. And what can happen is you begin to tolerate things in your life that are not pleasing to God. You begin to let things slide, little inconsistencies, dishonesties, things that you know, know that really soil your life and God is not pleased with, things that only you know. 
is a slow drift. And what it's doing is it's straining your relationship with God. It's going to strain your relationship with other people. But what it's done is it has taken the joy out of your life. There are sins that we commit. We just know we did something wrong or we continue to do something wrong. There are sins of omission where we fail to do what God's called us to do. But then I put this category, there are things that we don't even see because we're so, we've become so numb and callous to it. And living in this world, it's easy to become callous to that. Things in your life, in your heart that are not pleasing to the Lord. You wonder, why am I so miserable? Why am I so miserable? It's not all the sin, necessarily all the sin out there. Because all the sin out there, just remember this, all the sin out there does not have the power to take the joy away from you. But the sin in your own life has the power to do that. So when you mourn over your sin and turn from it, you find peace and joy and contentment and happiness. That's the point of this message. Happy mourners. So three ways I become a happy mourner, and I'll conclude with this. How can I be a happy mourner? Number one, attending to the Word. Because God's Word is light to me. It's, it's described as, as a light to show me what's wrong. It's a light to lead me to where I need to go. It's described as a mirror to show me what's there. <laughs> okay? That's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It's like going to the doctor and saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So I can make you better. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Well, Jesus will make you better. And when you're in the Word constantly, this is why I challenge you, every, you don't just wait till Sunday, it's every day in the Word, every day in the Word. And what this Word will do is will, like a light into your life and it's purging out all the things that rob you of your joy. It's dispelling the darkness. It starts with mourning. It leads to happiness. Secondly, asking Him in prayer. You ask God for help. His Holy Spirit lives in you. You're asking Him for help. And He brings help. He answers that. And then finally, acting in faith. When God shows me something in His Word, and I call on Him for help, and He answers, and I act in obedience of repentance and faith, God restores to me. What David, I love the way David says this. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You see, it ought to be, this is what's different about Christians. <laughs> Christians ought to be the most joyful people in the world. And it's not because their circumstances are better, but their heart is better. Their heart is better. Father, you love us so much and you want us to be happy. You want us to be at peace. You want us to have joy. Oh, Father, help us to see that we come that way through mourning and grieving and sorrow over our sin and repenting from it and finding the sweet forgiveness that you offer.
Lord, thank you for these pointed words because they help restore the joy that you want us to have. And we thank you in Jesus' name.